Welcome to continuing coverage of the 2020 Convention of the American Council of the Blind. Welcome back to ACB Radio. I'm Larry Gassman, and it's time now to learn about one of my favorite places. I went there on my honeymoon, so we're going to learn a little bit about Hawaii. And to help us with that, here's Carla Rushevold. Welcome to Historic Hawaii, the first program presented by the American Council of Blind Families. I'm Carla Rushevold, president of ACB Families, and I'm so glad that all of you are with us today. Because we're having a virtual convention, we have an opportunity to take a trip to Hawaii and to learn about Hawaii before the white man arrived there. We have a presentation for you that was created by the Bishop Museum in Hawaii, and thanks to Anthony Akamini for suggesting this presentation. They, um, the museum has prepared this especially for ACB, and we hope that all of you enjoy it. Without taking any more time, I'm going to uh, let the presentation begin and hope that all of you in, l- let us know uh, how much you like it. Um, and uh, we hope that also you will be, remember to register for ACB Families and be part of our door prize drawings and just learn more about families. Welcome to this first program and we have four more great programs throughout the week. Okay, before we do that, let me give the CEU credits for the, right. those of you taking those. Um, the the CEU credit for the the opening is A as in apple, B as in banana, B as in banana, zero seven. A as in apple, B as in banana, B as in banana, zero seven. Aloha, this is Melanie Ide, President and CEO of Bishop Museum in Honolulu, Hawaii. On behalf of the entire Bishop Museum Ohana, e komamai. We'd like to extend a warm mahalo for allowing us to be part of the American Council on Blinds 2020 Conference and Convention. As much as we'd love to welcome you here to the museum in person, we appreciate the opportunity to bring Bishop Museum to you via this audio presentation. For those unfamiliar with our museum, Bernice Pauahi Bishop Museum was founded in 1889 by Charles Reed Bishop in memory of his wife, Bernice Pauahi Bishop, a royal descendant of King Kamehameha I. Our mission is to inspire our community and visitors through the exploration, celebration, and perpetuation of the extraordinary history, culture, and environment of Hawaii and the Pacific. Today, the museum exists as a research institution and educational center for the community and is widely regarded as the world's premier museum containing Hawaiian and Pacific primary source material. Our collections of more than 25 million objects and specimens tell the stories of the cultures and biodiversity of Hawaii and the Pacific, as well as a proud legacy of scholarly research spanning over 130 years. In this presentation, our museum employees will take you on a tour of Hawaiian Hall, one of the museum's signature galleries. You'll start with a journey through the different realms of Hawaii. Kai Akea, 
representing Hawaiian gods, legends, beliefs, and the world of pre-contact Hawaii. Waukanaka, representing the realm where people live and work, focuses on the importance of the land and nature in daily life. And Waolani, the realm inhabited by the gods. Here you will learn about the ali'i and key moments in Hawaiian history. We also take you to neighboring Pacific Hall, another signature gallery, as well as the Abigail Kinoiki Kekaulike Kahili Room, where precious kahili or feather standards are on display. We hope you enjoy our presentation and have the opportunity to visit us in person one day. Thank you again for inviting us to your 2020 conference and convention, and mahalo. Walk up the short flight of stairs and through the two sets of glass double doors into the Hawaiian Hall Complex, and you begin a journey into the very history of Hawaii itself. Founded in 1889, the Bernice Pawahi Bishop Museum began as a lava rock-faced single structure, built on the grounds of the famous Kamehameha School, located on the plain called Ka'iwi'ula, upland of what was then central Honolulu. Both the school and the museum were created at the behest of Bernice Powahi Bishop, a great-granddaughter to the first king of Hawaii, King Kamehameha the Great, born in 1831 to High Chiefs Abner Paki and Laura Konia. Powahi was raised to potentially take up the role of an ali'i nui in a rapidly changing Hawaii. Within two generations, including her own, Powahi saw her kinsmen become mo'i, or monarchs, of a kingdom that would be recognized as a sovereign entity in Europe by the mid-1800s. She also saw the magnitude of changes that were beginning to affect her people. While she had the opportunity to become queen by marriage and by succession at the death of King Kamehameha V, Pawahi never took up rulership of the kingdom. Instead, she supported her people as a role model, remembered fondly even today for her kindness in life and her desire to see coming generations of Native Hawaiians benefit from educational opportunities afforded to them through her goodwill. Upon her death in 1884, her husband, Charles Reed Bishop, as executor of her will, created a trust to manage his late wife's estate and manage the creation and administration of a school for Native Hawaiian children. Pawahi, as an individual, owned close to 10% of the available private lands in the Kingdom of Hawaii, and this became the foundation for the resources of her estate. The school she envisioned, named for her great-grandfather, was founded in 1887. Two years later, a museum to hold the treasures that belonged to Powahi was begun at the campus, commissioned by Charles Reed Bishop with his own funds. By the 20th century, the school had grown much larger, serving thousands of Native Hawaiian students, and in 1940, the Kamehameha School moved up to the location that continues to be the home of the main Kapalama campus. Two large campus complexes, one on Hawaii Island and one on Maui, were founded in 1996 and serve hundreds of students from kindergarten through high school. At the original campus, 
the Bishop Museum's first structures were built in three phases. The first phase, completed in 1892, included the Kahili Room, Picture Gallery, and Hawaiian Vestibule, now called the Joseph M. Long Gallery. The second phase, completed by 1894, was once called Polynesian Hall, but since 2013 has been called Pacific Hall. And in Phase 3, the last large-scale construction, the three-story Hawaiian Hall Gallery was completed in 1903, open to the public by 1905. Besides renovations that led to the renaming and reopening of the Pacific Hall in 2013, the last major renovation to Hawaiian Hall finished in 2009, after which time the gallery spaces have largely remained without significant changes to exhibits or content. Now, more than 130 years later, the Bernice Pawahi Bishop Museum stands to this day on the same campus, continuing to inspire and educate the people of Hawaii and visitors from around the world. Olelo no Eau, 599. Hehulu Royal Feathers. Said of the adornment of a chief, or of an elderly chief himself who is one of the few survivors of his generation, and therefore precious. From the entry stairwell of the Hawaiian Hall complex, multiple paths continue your journey through the history and culture of Hawaii and the Pacific Islands as told through the collections of the Bishop Museum. Turn to the left through two modern glass doors and you enter the Abigail Kinowiki Ke Kaulike Kawananakoa Kahili Room. While its current name reflects generous contributions towards the gallery's restoration by Ms. Kawananakoa, a living relation to Prince David Kawananakoa, the Kahili Room has been part of the permanent galleries of the museum since 1892 completed as part of the first phase of construction. This unique gallery holds treasures from the museum's ethnology and archives departments, displaying not only the standards of royalty, but also original portraits painted of the ruling families from their first half of the 19th century. Besides the royal standards this regal room was intended to hold, the faces of Hawaii's ruling chiefs and chiefesses from the early 1800s are easily recognizable in the space. As you enter the double door to your left, the first ruling king of the Hawaiian Islands, King Kamehameha, also known as Kamehameha Nui and Kamehameha the Great, begins a line of portraiture that traces his descendants as ruling kings and chiefs of significance. Following his portrait are portraits of his two sons, King Kamehameha II, known as Liholiho, and King Kamehameha III, known as Kaui Keoli, who ruled one after the other in the midst of Hawaii's emergence on the world stage. Following these two kings, another set of brothers, grandsons to Kamehameha Nui, ruled in turn. Kamehameha IV, Alexander Liholiho, and Kamehameha V, Latkapoaiva, were second-generation kings in their own right, and the last two ruling chiefs who descended directly from Kamehameha Nui. Other famous members of the Kamehameha dynasty are shown in sequence in Emoto photographs from the mid-1800s. They include Queen Emma Naea, wife to Kamehameha IV, Prince Albert, son to Emma and Kamehameha IV, Princess Victoria Kamaumalu, sister to Kamehameha IV and V, Princess Ruth Kelikoolani, granddaughter to Kamehameha Nui, and Bernice Pawahi, great-granddaughter to the first king of Hawaii.
Following the Kamehameha line, images of the first elected monarchs take you to the opposite wall of the Kahili room. King William Charles Lunalilo successfully contested the first ever election held by the kingdom government after Kamehameha V died without naming an heir to his throne. Lunalilo was a distant relative to the Kamehameha family, beloved by the people for his own works. Upon his sudden death about a year after his ascension, and without having named a successor, another election saw the widowed Queen Emma and High Chief David Kalakawa vying for the throne. Queen Emma received the popular vote, but Kalakawa won over the government. Kalakawa, who was not closely related to the Kamehameha line, proved to be a worthy king and moved to represent Hawaii as a modern, progressive kingdom to all other nations on the planet. Upon his passing, Kalakawa's sister, Lydia Kamakaeha, better known as Queen Liliuokalani, became the ruling monarch of Hawaii. Her reign, just a few years, was prematurely ended by a coup d'etat conducted by wealthy and politically connected businessmen, commonly referred to as the Overthrow. An image of Queen Liliuokalani and the images of other family members of the Kalakawa line conclude the royal portraitures. Queen Kapi'olani, wife to Kalakawa, Prince David Kawananakoa, nephew and potential heir to the king, Princess Miriam Likelike, younger sister to Kalakawa and Liliuokalani, Princess Victoria Kaiulani, niece and heir to Liliuokalani, and Prince Jonah Kuhio Kalanianaole, the younger brother to David Kawananakoa, are all in turn pictured in this special gallery. These ali'i, not all of whom became rulers, all played pivotal roles in the history of the Kingdom of Hawaii and continue to be the subject of debate, appreciation, and love, even today. The Kahili Room was designed from the beginning with a high ceiling to allow for the long-term placement of Kahili, tall or short feathered standards used to show the presence of and provide spiritual protection for high-ranking ali'i, or chiefs. Generally, Kahili are constructed of three major components— the long pole that form the core of kahili is called the kumu, often made of kawila or other native Hawaiian hardwoods. The kumu was sometimes decorated with overlaid rings of ivory or turtle shell. The cylindrical upper portion, called hulumanu, was made of thousands of bird feathers, bundled into small bunches called uo. These uo were then tied onto the tips of branching components, called au, made of ie-ie rootlets or niau the midrib of the coconut leaf. These branches were then lashed from top down along the upper portion of the pole in a continuous spiral until the feathered section was deemed complete. At the top of the hulumanu was sometimes a fabric cover called papale, while the lower end was covered with a pau, a skirt-like funnel-shaped component that might also be covered in feathers. The pau was tied at the bottom with strips of bark cloth, silk, or ribbon. Kahili were often made in pairs, and most kahili, paired or not, were given their own names, names which were associated with the chiefs they were intended to honor or descriptive of the form of the kahili itself. Birds are considered to be special in native Hawaiian culture, and so their feathers are often utilized to exhibit the mana, the authority and power of high chiefs. The feathers used to create the upper portion of kahili came first from native coastal or forest birds, but as new bird species were introduced to Hawaii, their feathers could also be incorporated. Laysan albatross, 
red-tailed tropic bird, and frigate bird were commonly used to make the larger standards, called kahiliku, referring to their impressive heights, some well over 15 feet. Endemic forest birds, like o'o and i'iwi, only found in Hawaii, were used for large kahili and for kahili pa'alima, literally meaning kahili that are held in the hand. These smaller kahili might be no more than a few feet in height, but it could easily be used indoors and in close proximity to ali'i, whether on the move or in one place. In the later part of the 19th century, kahili were emblematic of the reigning monarchs of Hawaii. They could be seen at coronations for kings and queens, in processions to honor chiefs as they moved around the islands, at royal weddings, and also at funerary processions for high-ranking ali'i. Even when chiefs were in their own homes while entertaining guests or managing affairs of state, kahili were likely to be present nearby. Kahili bearers, called pa'a kahili or lave kahili, themselves were often of chiefly rank. But they might be expected, due to their family relationships, to serve as bearers for higher-ranking chiefly families. The Bishop Museum has the largest collection of Hawaiian kahili of the historical period anywhere in the world including 75 kahili ku and 175 kahili pa'alima, many of which belong to Bernice Pawahi Bishop and are connected to the Kamehameha family line. As you enter the gallery, just to your left along the wall, is a large kahili ku made of black o'o feathers. This kahili, named Eleele Ualani, not only belonged to Pawahi, but was the very first item to be entered into the collections of the museum that still bears her name as number 0001. <laughs> Pulu pe hoi kala aula kupu malama lama kala maku e ulua enei kamaluku kui kaivi ula liloa pa ai kamuena lo lua halali Olelo no eau 2814 Great and numerous is the knowledge of the Hawaiians. On the first floor south-facing wall of Hawaiian Hall hangs a series of 16 paintings, each roughly 6 feet high by 12 inches wide. They are arranged into two sets of eight, flanking a central video screen. The work created by native Hawaiian artist Carl F.K. Pau depicts the 2,000-line Hawaiian creation chant, the Kumulipo, speaking to the origins of the universe, the ordering of all living things, and the genesis of man. This installation depicts the 16 wa, or chapters, of this chant, the first eight taking place in pole, or darkness. One god becomes two, a male, Kumulipo, and a female, Poele. From their union is born the first primitive sea creatures, followed by fish, insects, birds, amphibians, winged creatures, and mammals. 
This ordering reflects the Hawaiian understanding of duality, evolution, and interdependency. The second set of panels take place in Ao, or day, as the dawn of humans begin. Starting from the right, moving to the left across the wall, each panel has a stacked number of white triangles on its lower left side that corresponds to the wa it represents. A third up from the bottom edge and centered on each panel is a black dot set on a pair of white vertical stripes. A third down from the top edge and centered on each panel is a single red moon in varying degrees of fullness. Beginning with a black new moon on the first panel and ending with a red full moon on the last panel. The remaining space in each panel is filled with the story and imagery described in each particular wa. In Pao's artist statement, he states, Four is a powerful number for Hawaiians. Four times four is even more powerful, hence the traditional 16 panels of the creation story. Each panel contains aspects of the sea, land, and sky, and depicts the progressive stages of the moon. Each white triangle symbolizes a generation, with the stacked line of triangles indicating the many generations, or one's ancestral lineage. Each black dot on top of two white stripes represents one's pico, or navel, and the coral polyp, which, in the chant, is the first evidence of life. Through the generations, fish, plants, and birds begin to appear. Turtles move between land and sea. Larger sea and land creatures emerge. Man appears, and his ties to the land, flora, and fauna is symbolized by the genealogical ties to kalo, breadfruit, and other elements important in the lives of the Hawaiian people. Enter into the largest single contiguous gallery space of the Hawaiian Hall Complex, and you will be greeted by the three realms of Kayakea, Waukanaka, and Waulani at their respective levels on the first, second, and third floors. From the main landing of the first floor, moving directly into the midst of the gallery space, a large rectangular display stands waist-high, helping to tell a story of Hawaii from the distant past up to the contemporary time. Koa wood-faced sides frame this large model of a sacred site, depicted to scale using lava rock, natural fibers, and small carved images. This is a representation of a heiau, a temple called Wahaula. The temple structure was of the Luakini class, used as a place of worship for high-ranking ali'i and high-ranking kahuna, or priestly experts. The term kahuna conveys not only knowledge of religious protocols, but also practical knowledge of arts like house-building, image-carving, herbal medicines, and natural phenomena like wave patterns and the movements of stars. Similar to heiau and other religious spaces, Many classes of kahuna are known, but kahuna nui, the highest priestly experts close to chiefs in rank and responsibility, would lead rituals at a place such as Wahaula. Wahaula may have been the first luakiniheao constructed in Hawaii, and is connected to a kahuna named Pa'au and a sacred chief named Kili. In oral traditions, 
Both Pa'au and Pili are said to have been born in a faraway place called Kahiki, cognate in name to Tahiti. Another name used for Pa'au's homeland is Upolu, a name also found in Samoa, reminding us that Polynesian migrations came to Hawaii even after the first native Hawaiians were already living in the islands. In the story of Pa'au, after the loss of his son and the unraveling of his relationship with his brother Lonopele, Pa'au and his crew make way for a new place to call home, bringing with them a kaula, or prophet, named Makua Kaumana. Passing successfully through trials at sea, they arrive in Puna on Hawaii Island. Eventually, Pa'au directs the construction of Wahaula, finished sometime between the 13th and 14th centuries. During Pa'au's lifetime, he feels the high chiefs of Hawaii have not maintained their spiritual authority because they married non-ranking commoners. So Pa'au decides to return to Kohiki in order to find a chief who can right this perceived wrong. The chosen Ali'i Nui is Pili, brought to Hawaii Island along with what is believed to be new religious practices that privilege high-ranking people with access to heiau like Wahaula and maintain hierarchical separations between the Ali'i and Makainana, the common folk. Amidst these changes, Wahaula continued on as a sacred place and remained relatively untouched through time, even after its consistent use by Ali'i stopped in the 19th century. However, as with many aspects of life on Hawaii Island, understanding the ebb and flow of volcanic activity, sometimes credited to the Akua Pele, provides a sense that few things last forever. In recent history, Kilauea volcano has shown different levels of activity. Kilauea means to spew, which aptly describes occasions wherein the volcano has sent gouts of lava into the air or caused molten rock to flow under the surface or over it. In 1983, a series of violent eruptions and fountains began changing the landscape of Kilauea's east rift zone at a site later called Pu'o'o, for nearly a decade to follow, this active rift zone would bring rocky flows, called A'a in Hawaiian, down through the landscape, reaching the sea by November 1986, burying the community of Kapa'ahu. In 1990, the breakouts from a connected lava tube entered and destroyed the historic town of Kalapana. By February 1992, activity had slowed but five years later in 1997, activity and flow reached new intensity, and in August, Wahaula was covered by flowing lava. In 1902, John F.G. Stokes, who was conducting surveys and ethnographic work for the Bishop Museum, created this model of Wahaula using stones from the site. He and then-director William T. Brigham of the Bishop Museum surveyed the actual place of Wahaula some years earlier, this model was intended to provide visitors to the Hawaiian Hall with an example of the construction and scale of historical temple structures on Hawaii Island. While the model has undergone changes in representing the various structures the original heiau was understood to encompass, it has remained a symbol not only of its real-world counterpart, but also of the Bishop Museum as one of the first exhibits created for the Hawaiian Hall. As you arrive at the north end of the Hawaiian Hall's first floor, Quietly dominating a third of the central space is a historical hale pili, or pili grass house. Standing about 12 feet at its tallest point, 
This halipili came to the Bishop Museum in the early 1900s as an extraordinary example, even for its time, of traditional construction practices and community purpose in Hawaii. Enclosed by a small perimeter of coconut fiber rope to protect the delicate bundles of grass that cover its exterior, this hale has been a signature feature of the Hawaiian Hall since the gallery was completed around 1903. In Hawaii, the general term for a house or structure is hale, similar to other parts of the Pacific Islands, like fare in Tahiti and Aotearoa, New Zealand, fale in Samoa and Tonga, hae in the Marquesas, and vale in Fiji. Many structures could be seen in the kauhale, the homestead or settlement area of Hawaii, and while their forms might not vary greatly, their purposes could vary significantly. While some hale could be quite large, few were ever partitioned inside, and these hale might be mainly for ali'i, or chiefs. For the maka'ainana, a kauhale would have hale mua, or men's houses for ritual and eating, Hale aina, where women would eat and raise the children. Hale moi, or hale noa, for sleeping of men and women in one place. And other kinds of structures specific to the needs of the community. Separate houses for the making of va'a, or canoes. Ki'i, or images. Kuku kapa, the making of bark cloth. And food preparation could also be part of a typical Hawaiian community. Hale were often constructed using native hardwoods like uhiuhi, nayo, Ohialehua and Mamane, and thatching materials such as pili grass or leaves from pandanus, banana, or tea plants. This historical hale may have stood in Milo'i on the island of Kauai for close to 100 years before it was purchased by the Bishop Museum for display inside the Hawaiian Hall. It was carefully deconstructed piece by piece, all pieces labeled, then brought over by barge to Oahu and reconstructed with a stonework base in 1902. It is believed to be one of the last standing traditional hale of the 19th century. During larger restorations to the Hawaiian Hall complex structure, the hale pili was also restored, its components carefully undone and assessed for longevity. Alahe'e wood supports, new uki-uki cordage, and new pili grass thatching were added to finish off the refurbished structure. The halepili is furnished with two muena, or woving mats. Made from strips of dried lohala, or pandanus leaves, the larger mat was created in 2009 specifically for the hale. Outside the halepili, a tall haka, or rack platform for hanging items to be kept safe from animals, holds three ipu, or gourds, in coconut fiber koko, or carrying nets. Today, contemporary practitioners continue to construct hale using historical techniques with new materials, using invasive trees like mangrove and strawberry guava for posts and beams, and paracord for lashing. Within the past two decades, counties around the state of Hawaii have begun to adopt and implement official building codes for the construction of hale, which has allowed builders to continue these age-old techniques in ways that pay homage to the skill and adaptability of their ancestors. Directly opposite the doorway of the Hale Pili along the northern wall of Hawaiian Hall is a large case currently filled with two special pieces of Hawaiian history, the Ahu'ula, feathered cape, and Mahiole, feathered helmet, of High Chief Kalaniopu'u. The Ahu'ula and Mahiole are covered in brilliant red and yellow feathers from the Iivi, O'o, and Mamo birds, all endemic species to Hawaii. 
the Ahu'ula, which is approximately 6 feet at its widest point and 5 feet tall, has a trapezoidal silhouette with a curved lower edge. It has also been estimated to have approximately 4 million feathers. Typically, 4 to 8 feathers were collected from a single bird, making garments of this type extremely time-consuming to manufacture and significant for its intended owner. Red feathers are typically reserved for use in chiefly symbols throughout Polynesia and the Greater Pacific, but in Hawaii, yellow feathers receive equal if not higher status because of their rarity. The backing of the ahu'ula consists of a fine mesh net made from olona, an endemic nettle to Hawaii recognized as the strongest natural plant fiber on the planet. The rigid structure of the helmet is made from split aerial roots of an upland forest vine known as ie-ie. This material is known for its strength and durability. Because of the difficulty in acquiring all of the materials necessary to make such garments, these chiefly symbols visually manifested a chief's land base, available resources, and community support, as it took many hands and countless hours to gather, prepare, and assemble the necessary materials. Kalaniopu'u was the elder brother of Keoua, the father of Kamehameha and high paramount chief of Hawaii Island at the time of British navigator Captain James Cook's arrival in 1778. During the late 1700s, Kalaniopu'u engaged in many battles with Maui Island's paramount chief Kahekili, whose rule extended throughout the islands. In 1779, Kalaniopu'u met Cook for the first time in Kealakekua Bay. Cook's onboard artist, John Weber, captured the moment on paper, illustrating a bay filled with canoes bearing people, food, and gifts as Kalaniopu'u made his way to Cook's ship. Kalaniopu'u presented Cook with many ahu'ula, war trophies from previous battles, food, and other chiefly items. He also took his own ahu'ula and mahiole off and placed them onto Cook's shoulders and head respectively. This act of giving someone one's own personal clothing to wear was strictly forbidden because of mana, spiritual energy imbued into such items. On rare exception, it was only acceptable amongst immediate kin within the chiefly class. This act indicated how close Colonial Pu'u felt to Cook, affording him that great honor. After Cook left Hawaii fully provisioned and laden with Hawaiian chiefly gifts, he was caught in a storm and was forced to return to Hawaii for repairs. Cook's quick return was not met with favorable tidings as he hoped, rather suspicion and agitation. As tensions rose, Cook attempted to kidnap Colonial Pu'u to forcibly acquire more supplies, but a battle ensued and Cook was killed. The history of these two pieces have been meticulously recorded since they left Hawaii in 1779, one of only a handful of such items that have a complete record of its history and travel.
Arriving at the second floor landing in the Hawaiian Hall, you enter into the Waukanaka, the realm of people. Waukanaka helps to tell the story of how Native Hawaiians culture relationships with Aina, the land, which feeds and sustains life. From the landing of Waukanaka, the breadth of the natural resources of Hawaiian culture can be understood through relationships to cultural practices, how we make and sustain food, how to create and use vessels to protect what is valued, how tools shape the universe, and how kanaka, or people, do not simply survive in this cultural landscape, but thrive when the reciprocal relations with aina are maintained properly. Part of this reciprocation involves indigenous systems of land management that place kanaka in close, familial relation with aina, built on the concept of malama, meaning to care, attend, protect, and maintain. The well-known term malama aina means to care for the land, with the sense that when people care for the land, the land will care for the people. This basic tenet of a Hawaiian worldview is as much a part of contemporary Native Hawaiian culture as any other. In Hawaii, one way the value of malama aina is seen, in historical contexts, is the process of natural resource stewardship that is most often called the ahupua'a system. Ahupua'a literally refers to a stone altar, or ahu, atop which a pig, or pua'a, would be placed. These kinds of altars would mark the boundaries to land divisions, which were also called ahupua'a. Generally, ahupua'a would stretch from coral flats, past the beach, up through the lowlands, all the way up to high points in montane regions. Ahupua'a were sometimes defined by natural features like flowing water or ridges and valleys in the landscape, but all ahupua'a were designed so that residents would have access to fresh water and areas for cultivation and habitation. What has been more contemporaneously called an ahupua'a system is said to be thanks to Maili Kukahi, an ali'i nui of Oahu, and his desire to effectively organize the lands, chiefs, and resources within his control. Out of this, the Mokupuni, or island, of Oahu was organized into six moku, or districts, which would then be further divided into Ahupua'a, then into smaller land divisions like Ilikupono, Iliaina, and Mo'oaina. Moku, Ahupua'a, and all other smaller land divisions were also given names, many of which we still hear in Hawaii today. For example, on Oahu, the moku called Kona occupies a large section of the southeast to central portion of the island. Within the Kona moku are many ahupua'a, including recognizable places such as Manoa, Waikiki, Palolo, Kalihi, and Kapalama. For Hawaiians, ahupua'a continue to represent the idea of self-sufficient, community-based relationships to natural resources that sustain human life and require management practices to maintain abundance. Makai, towards the ocean, fishing yielded the majority of traditional proteins in the form of fish, shellfish, mollusks, and seaweed. Makula, in the lowland areas, bananas, sweet potatoes, taro, breadfruit, and many other food crops are grown. Mauka, towards the upland areas, native forest trees, endemic bird species, and specialized resources might be gathered for specific purposes. These three zones, among others, provided what was needed to survive and to thrive. This is the essence and the beauty of the Ahupua'a system. 
These resources and practices are also the basis for the arrangement of exhibits on Waukonaka, starting with food gathering and moving through tools, textiles, hula and music, weapons, adornment, and herbal medicine. Moving through Waukonaka, the first three exhibit cases to the left of the railings provide a glimpse of the many innovative and time-tested techniques and tools involved in Hanalawai'a, fishing in Hawaii. In Olelo, Hawaii, the word ia refers not only to fish, but many different kinds of marine creatures, especially ones that are edible. Ia can refer to fish with fins and tails, sea turtles, sharks, sea snails, bivalves, sea cucumbers, crustaceans, and even to land-based proteins in certain contexts. Many varieties of limu, ocean algae or seaweeds, were also eaten. The primary food source of the ocean for Hawaiians is ia. Many kinds of fish are eaten in Hawaii, including trevallis, tuna, mullet, jacks, bonefish, scad, mackerel, parrotfish, marlin, wahoo, and snapper, just to name a few. Heiau were established around the islands to increase the presence of the desired species of ia within traditional fishing grounds, which were sometimes restricted to communities geographically connected to those places. Koa, underwater fishing shrines created through a combination of lava rock and corals, were used both for ceremonial and practical purposes. Fish were sometimes baited near the location of a koa, which would help to condition the fish to be present hence making fishing more consistent. Some ko'a were also able to be seen from high spots along the coast, and experts would be able to help po'elawai'a, fishers, to properly locate shoals of fish underwater. Fishing, like many cultural practices in Hawaii, was based in practicality, but included specific religious and spiritual practices to ensure success. Po'elawai'a would pray to deities like Ku'ulakai and Hinapukui'a or Kanaloa paramount god of the sea. Some would also pray to family deities called Omakua that might have the form of certain animals like sharks and who would appear in order to bring fish closer to canoes or nets. Successful fishing was also followed by prayers and offerings of first catches were provisioned to shrines on shore. On Waukanaka, the exhibits that relate fishing practices show many of the specialized tools that were used in Hawaii in the past, some of which are still in use today. Included among these are many beautiful examples of fish hooks and lures. Many of the hooks, called makau in Hawaiian, are made from mammal bone, shaped in graceful curvatures that stem from the strong shank at the back. Yet there is great variety in shape, size, and material. Besides bone, many Hawaiian fish hooks were made from the shell of honu'ea, the hawksbill sea turtle. These kinds of makau were sometimes made in shapes similar to the bone hooks, but their warm orange, brown, and translucent color tones show the striking difference between the two materials. Oyster shell was also used to make fish hooks, and many of these are smaller in dimension than the average adult's thumbnail. The largest fish hooks were made to catch fish such as ulua, or giant trevallis, and mano, or sharks. Tiger sharks and great white sharks were caught in this way, using large hooks made of strong, thick sections of whalebone, purposefully or naturally curved hardwood branches and roots, or a combination of a wooden shank and a whalebone point. Specialized lures, called pahiaku and luhe'e, were also used to catch specific varieties of fish in Hawaiian waters. Pahiaku are trolling lures meant to float near the surface of the water, trailing at the back of a canoe as it moves forward. 
Pahiaku combine a slightly curved bone point with a pearl shell shank, lashed together at the connecting bases, and lashed again to a central line that connects to the carefully placed hole at the top of the shank. This top line would then connect to the hand line. The brilliant shell would shine in the water, and its surfboard-like shape made it appear as if it were a small bait fish, attracting aku and ahi, the two major species of tuna seen in Hawaiian waters. Luhe'e are another kind of lure used in canoes, but are not dragged from the back. Instead, luhe'e are held by a hand line and dipped up and down underwater. Luhe'e are made of a plain wooden shank onto which is lashed a large leho or cowrie shell and a stone matched to the size of the shell. The shells were valued for their colors, and depending on the species, the largest shells chosen for their dark reddish-brown or light and spotted colors might barely fit in an adult's hand. These leho would sometimes be turned over a fire to subtly adjust the hue of the shell as to make it the most attractive color possible to the intended prey. A sharply pointed hook is lashed to the base of the wooden shank, and strips of tea leaf may be added at the bottom to create more disturbance in the water as the luhe'e bobs up and down. The whole lure is intended to catch he'e, or octopus, as these animals prey on the cowrie snail living inside the shell. The poela vaia holding the line might wait until feeling the weight of the he'e on the lure, then rapidly pull it up. Famous areas for he'e fishing, such as he'eia on Oahu and Lahaina on Maui, are still accessible today by those who know what to do. Besides fishing with hooks and lures, upena, or nets, were used in many different forms and sizes, including long drag nets, scoop or dip nets, and bag nets, commonly made with natural fibers from plants like the endemic ulona, a nettle which lacks stinging hairs, and hao, otherwise known as beach hibiscus. Woven basket-like fish traps called hinai were also commonly used. Made from the rootlets of the native ieie plant and weighed down with a heavy stone, hinai are rounded at the top and taper to the bottom, where the stone is tied on and supported using small sticks. A funnel-like passage that is woven into the central open space of the hinai allows small fish to dart inside but does not allow them to escape. Many small reef fish species can be caught in this way without the need to tend to a line or net as in other kinds of fishing. But perhaps the greatest fish trap developed by Native Hawaiians as a sustainable and productive means of harvesting herbivorous fish species was the lokoi'a, a fish pond style of aquaculture that could be seen around the islands up until fairly recently. Lokoi'a took on different forms, but a common form still seen today is the lokokuapa, made by creating a coastal wall of stone and coral to enclose a large area of reef in a semi-circular fashion. The kuapa walls would be packed tightly to resist flooding from upland rivers connecting to the sea and wave action from the ocean. Makaha or sluice gates were positioned along specific parts of the wall, made by using hardwood branches lashed together and affixed to the wall. The branches were spaced out so water could flow between them, also allowing small or juvenile fish species to swim through freely. The juvenile species that stayed inside the pond could grow to maturity without the predation of the open reef or ocean but would be too large to swim back out through the makaha. Some fish species were also moved from one place to another in order to stock the lokoi'a, maintaining stocks at appropriate levels during the right time of the year. This system helped to ensure consistent access to eating fish like anai and ama'ama. As you turn right at the first major corner of Waukanaka, agricultural practices, food preparation, and storage containers are highlighted in four upright cases. 
agricultural systems reached a high level of development in Hawaii, fully utilizing geography and environmental conditions to maximize crop production. The creation of specialized irrigation ditches and networks were also employed to increase productivity. Craftsmanship and design functionality in Hawaii excelled in the manufacture of stone food pounders, carved wooden bowls, and gourd containers. The Mahi'ai farmers took great pride in caring for their crops grown in dryland fields and wetland terraces. The principal starch of Hawaii is kalo. Kalo is a root vegetable that produces highly nutritious corms, leaves, and petioles when properly cooked. In Hawaiian tradition, Wakea, Sky Father, and Papahanaumoku, Earth Mother, had a stillborn child and named him Haloa. They buried him, and from his grave grew the Kalo plant. Their next child was born healthy and strong, and was also named Haloa, who became the ancestor of the Hawaiian people. Through this story, a familial relationship is established between the Kalo plant and people. As it is the responsibility of older siblings to take care of the younger, the kalo plant provides food for nourishment and growth. In turn, people honor and take care of the kalo plant as an older sibling. Through practices and stories like this, values are passed down from one generation to the next. Mahi'ai also grew various forms of gourd to create specialized containers for carrying water and food storage. Gourd varieties destined to be water carriers were grown on trellises to allow long necks to form as the gourds grew suspended in the air. Food container varieties were selected for their size and were often left to sprawl on the ground, but looked after daily to prevent blemishes or damage on the developing gourds. As you come to the second major corner of Waukanaka, the northeast end of the second floor, the very essence of the islands is shown, shaped and tempered into mea pa'ahana, useful tools to create and give form to the many necessities made from pohaku or stone and la'au or wood. A ray of ala, dense basalt, provides a gradient for considering the sizes and forms of ko'i or adzes, the main tools used to hew, cut, and carve wood into the utilitarian and ritual objects of native Hawaiian culture. Basalt lava rock is formed as the volcanic processes that have shaped the Hawaiian Islands for millions of years continues. While molten rock that rises from deep below the surface in Hawaii varies greatly in terms of mineral and chemical content, the dense bluestone, as it is called in English, or ala in Hawaiian, is relied upon for the making of adzes, chisels, and other implements that require consistent, solid material throughout. Dense basalt of tool-making quality is not found predictably across every island in Hawaii, and even in the past, famous quarry areas became centers for production, innovation, and trade. The most well-known of these areas in modern time is along the south slope of Mauna Kea on Hawaii Island. While there are many techniques that can be used to shape stone, in Hawaii, it is understood that the dense basalt was transformed by flaking and chipping prior to grinding to a final shape. Rough shaping was accomplished by using hammer stones, which were also made of basalt, to flake off large pieces or chip away at the small edges on stone. Once the general shape and proportion of an adze or other tool had been achieved, the shaped basalt would be taken to a hoana, or grinding stone. This process could take days at a time, but kahuna ka koi, 
ad-shaping priestly experts would work with communities of apprentices to create these long-lasting, highly-valued stone tools. Many Hawaiian ko'i measure less than a human forearm in length, but can be easily as wide at the blade edge as the width of an adult's palm. At least one example of a Hawaiian ads is longer than this, but its proportions, with a long taper to the working edge and a short tang, the section that would be fitted with cordage lashed onto the wooden handle, have led some to believe it was intended not for heavy work, but for ceremony. Ceremonial ko'i were needed for many occasions, especially in the making of ki'i, images set up for large temple structures, and ba'akaulua, double-hold voyaging canoes cut from the native core forests of Hawaii. On these occasions, consecrated adzes, wielded by kahuna kalai, or carving experts, would begin the process of felling the trees, while other ko'i varieties would be employed to do rough and final shaping. Besides rock, two other materials are described in historical accounts and recorded in museum collections as having been used to make Hawaiian adzes. Native Hawaiian genealogist and historian David Malo wrote in the early 19th century that the ole is the adze of the shore and the alahe'e is the adze of the inland. Neither ole nor alahe'e are types of stone, although you can certainly find stone on many beaches and in forest areas of Hawaii. Instead, the ole is a shell of the triton conch, and the alahe'e is an indigenous tree also known as Cydrax odorata, a member of the coffee family. Shell adzes were used in certain parts of Hawaii, just as clamshell adzes are found in many parts of the Western Pacific. They can achieve some of the same functions as stone adzes and require less shaping, although tend to be more fragile. However, alahe'e was prized for its toughness and strength, and thin blade-like sections were cut and sharpened to make adzes for trimming softer woods like kukui and bilibili, used in the making of canoe parts. Olelo no eau one thousand one hundred and fifty. Ialii no kealii ike kanaka. A chief is a chief because of the people who serve him. This was often used as a reminder to a chief to consider his people. Arriving at the landing of the third level of Hawaiian Hall, you enter Waulani, the heavenly realm of chiefs and deities. Surrounded by large exhibit cases that display the symbols of Hawaiian nobility, Waulani's initial areas privilege the stories of the founding collections of the museum, from Royal Chiefesses Bernice Powahi Bishop, Ruth Ke'eliko Lani, and Emma Naea. This pathway also introduces the first reigning monarch of Hawaii, King Kamehameha. Kamehameha the Great, known also as Paiea, was born in Kohala on Hawaii Island the son of the chiefess Kekuia Poiva and two Ali'inui, Keua Kalani Kupua Pai Kalani Nui of Kohala and Kahekili of Maui. Both of these male Ali'i are credited as the fathers of King Kamehameha. Kamehameha himself descends from multiple lines of high chiefs, including that of Liloa and his son Umia Liloa, who are also of Hawaii Island. As a young man, Kamehameha was trained in the arts of battle and politics. It was the warrior chief Keiku Haupi'o who refined Kamehameha's prowess, particularly in the art of throwing and catching ihe, or spears. During Kamehameha's lifetime, the Ali'inui Kalanio Pu'u, his uncle, met with Captain James Tiberius Cook of England in 1778, and even Kamehameha was recorded in the journals of the British officers. After the death of his uncle Kalanio Pu'u, 
large changes began to occur in the political situation of Hawaii Island that Kamehameha himself would come to witness. High chiefs of the older generations disagreed with plans to divide the lands of the island, with Kalanio Pu'u's son Kiwala'o taking up reign as the Ali'i Nui, or high chief. Kamehameha became embroiled in the conflicts that would follow, and at the Battle of Moku Ohai in Kona, his cousin Kiwala'o died, after which time the lands of Hawaii Island were split up again. Kamehameha took upon his own efforts to consolidate rule on Hawaii, coming into conflict with his other cousin, Keua Ku Ahuula. Kamehameha's successes were considered to be due to his keeping of the responsibilities given to him by Kalanio Pu'u, who charged Kamehameha with stewardship over the family deity Ku Kailimoku. Kamehameha did so with zeal and built many temples to honor his Akua, some of which still exist today, like Pu'ukohola in Kauaihai on the island of Hawaii. It was at Pu'ukohola that Kamehameha would defeat his cousin using the sacred chief as an offering to consecrate the great temple. By 1810, Kamehameha the Great had done what no other chief had accomplished in the history of these islands, by uniting the eight major lands under one government entering into a period of peace and stability. During the later years of his life and after his passing in 1819, Kamehameha the Great was called Makua, or father, of what would become known as the Kingdom of Hawaii. He was the first Mo'i, or monarch, in a series of rulers which included his sons and grandsons. Kamehameha's reign and his legacy are an intrinsic aspect of Hawaii even to this day. And while some of his personal items are displayed in both the Bishop Museum and museums abroad, one object stands out among all the rest, the Mamo Cloak of Kamehameha. Feathered capes and cloaks, called Ahuula, were symbolic of Ali'i and related to different ranks and purposes. By the 18th century, Hawaiian feather cloaks and capes had shifted in form to be curved along the margins. Borders of geometric patterns rendered like triangles or small squares of color follow the margins of some capes, while the larger portion might be saved for curving, rounded patterns in contrasting colors, or be left as one solid field of red or yellow. Red and yellow feathers became the most prized colors to use in showing the mana of a high chief in Hawaii. And even though the feathers of birds like roosters could still exhibit the authority of a lower-ranking chief, the feathers of birds like Iivi, Apapane, O'o, and Mamo were those most sought for the making of Ahuula. These honeycreeper species descended from common ancestors that arrived in Hawaii thousands of years prior to the first human beings. Iivi and Apapane are known for their bright to scarlet red coloration, and despite many other birds having gone extinct within the last century, these birds remain in small numbers in native forest areas around the islands. The Hawaii Mamo and four O'o species were famous for their mostly black plumage with patches of white along the undersides of their bodies, and small bunches of canary to goldenrod yellow feathers. While the black feathers were used for chiefly adornments, it was the delicate, uncommon yellow feathers that were the choicest of all. The Ahuula of Kamehameha incorporates nearly 500,000 individual yellow mamo feathers, bundled and sewn onto a large full-length cloak netting. As many as 60,000 mamo birds may have been caught and released after the desired feathers were taken to make this ahuula. It remains today as a testament of the mana of Kamehameha the Great, who, like this ahuula, is still considered one of a kind. Born in August 1813, King Kamehameha III, Kauikeoli, was the second son of King Kamehameha the Great and his royal wife, Keopuolani. 
After the passing of his elder brother, King Kamehameha II, Liholiho, in England, at the age of 11, Kauwi Keoli was thrust into preparations to become Mo'i, of a kingdom that was still being brought slowly to the attention of the wider world. Expectations for the successor to the Kamehameha throne were high, and while Kauwi Keoli ruled for nearly three decades, even longer than his father, his time was marked by successes and complexities that neither of his predecessors could have fully anticipated. Unlike his father and older brother, Kauwi Keoli had few internal political aggressions to address, instead dealing with impositions and the growth of external influences in Hawaii. While his father and brother sought protection and recognition with the British, his mother Keopuolani and Kuhina Nui Kaahumanu maintained close connections to the American missionaries who had arrived after the death of Kamehameha the Great in 1819. In his late 20s, Kauwi Keoli had moved to establish laws and regulations for the benefit of the people and administration of his government that would be considered progressive for their time. One of these was the enacting of the Constitution of 1840, which effectively changed the rule of Hawaii from absolute monarchy, with all functional power leveraged by the Mo'i, to a constitutional monarchy, which separated the powers of government into three constituent parts. The executive, comprised of the Mo'i, or monarch, the Kuhina Nui, or prime minister, and Kia Aina, or governors, a bicameral legislature made up of a house of nobles, who were appointed chiefs, and house of representatives elected by the people, and a judiciary system with a supreme court to adjudicate the laws of the kingdom. In 1842, Ali'i Timoteo Ha'alilio, Reverend William Richards, and Sir George Simpson were chosen as ministers to represent the desire of Kauwi Keoli and the Kingdom of Hawaii to reach amicable agreements and treaties with the nations of Europe and the United States of America. Not long after the delegation of three left for Mexico, a French warship arrived under the command of Captain S. Mallet who was under orders to investigate and address complaints of French Catholics who were being treated unfairly compared to Protestants. Kauwi Keoli replied to Mallet's demands by saying no violations or discriminations had occurred, informing Mallet that ministers had just been sent to the King of France to enter into a new treaty. Mallet was apparently satisfied, and the claims were quit for the time being. Around the same time, British Consul Richard Charlton, aggrieved by the presence of American missionaries and traders, sought to address allegedly prejudicial treatment of British subjects in Hawaii. He worked with Alexander Simpson, cousin to Sir George Simpson, to denigrate the mission of the Hawaiian delegation to Europe by leaving his authority in the hands of Alexander Simpson while he left for England. Simpson's temporary authority was not recognized by the Hawaiian Kingdom government. In addition, a legal dispute against Charlton resulted in Simpson calling for a British warship to set sail for Hawaii. Lord George Paulette and his ship, the Carysfort, were ordered to Honolulu. Arriving in February 1843, Paulette met with Simpson to discuss the charges and case against Charlton, waiting about a week for Kaui Keoli to travel from Lahaina on Maui to Honolulu for a private meeting. The king declined, but agreed to receive any letters from the two naming Dr. Jarrett Judd his agent. Paulette, in turn, responded with a letter of demands, including reparations to Charlton, acknowledgement of Simpson as acting consul, and adoption of fairer policies for British subjects in Hawaii, among other things. Lacking these, Paulette indicated he would take action. Kauwi Keoli, fearing bloodshed and violence, assented under protest, but also sent an appeal to the Queen of England. Simpson and Paulette pressed further, and a tentative agreement of session was reached. On February 25th, 1843, British flags were flown where Hawaiian flags had been only hours earlier. Kauwi Keoli delivered a speech to his people, 
saying that while he was forced to give up sovereignty of the land due to the circumstances, he hoped the sovereignty and life of the land would be restored. For nearly five months, the British-led commission set up by Paulette held sway over the Kingdom of Hawaii. But on July 26, 1843, Rear Admiral Richard Darton Thomas arrived in Honolulu with the flagship Dublin to appraise the situation. Thomas met Kaui Keoli the day after his arrival and made clear his purpose to the king. Queen Victoria of England wished to restore independence to the Kingdom of Hawaii. After reaching an agreement that clarified the rights and privileges of British citizens in Hawaii, restoration was achieved on July 31, 1843, at a site now called Thomas Square in downtown Honolulu. This also marked two important moments in the Hawaiian Kingdom. First, Kaui Keoli declared, that the sovereignty of the land had been preserved in righteousness, a phrase which has defined many other moments in Hawaiian history. And second, the celebration of the first national holiday in the kingdom called La Ho'ihoi'ea, Sovereignty Restoration Day, a holiday that has been marked ever since. The second national holiday of the Hawaiian kingdom was also declared that same year on November 28th, celebrating the recognition of Hawaii's independence and sovereignty by England and France. Despite many challenges abroad and at home, the successful diplomatic actions of Ha'alilio and Richards directly led to La Kuokoa, Hawaiian Independence Day. During these times in Kawikioli's reign, not only was the flag of the Hawaiian kingdom shown to the world and given the respect of many nations, but the development and implementation of a coat of arms for the kingdom was also realized. While visiting London, Ha'alilio and Richards submitted plans to the College of Arms, the institution responsible for designing and maintaining coats of arms in Britain. While the refining of the kingdom flag, which adapted elements of the British flag, had been underway since Kamehameha the Great's time, the coat of arms was another means by which to show that Hawaii was just as capable of portraying herself as a modern nation as any other. The major elements of the Hawaiian coat of arms incorporate the crown of the monarch above a centered shield. The shield is split into four quadrants, two of which show the pu'ula'ula'u, a pole topped with a pu'olo of white kapa, which is a sign of the kapu, or sacredness of a chief, and the eight white, red, and blue stripes of the Hawaiian kingdom flag. Flanking the shield are representations of two ali'i, who are part of the court of Kamehameha the Great. To the left, holding an ihe, or spear, is Kamanawa. On the right, holding a kahili, is Kamea Moku. These sacred twins were relatives of Kamehameha's mother and famous in their own right in Hawaiian history. The coat of arms also incorporated Kaui Keoli's motto, Ua mau keeo ka kapono, stretched along a banner at the bottom of the design. A painted metal coat of arms in the design as it was adopted by the Legislature Assembly of the Kingdom of Hawaii in 1845 is prominently displayed in the Waulani case which speaks to Kaui Keoli's reign, one chief among many whose actions shaped the history of Hawaii. David Kalakaua, born on November 16, 1836, was the second elected constitutional monarch of the Hawaiian Kingdom, reigning from February 12, 1874 to January 20, 1891. He was affectionately known as the Merry Monarch because of his love for music and entertaining. His love for his culture was also made evident when he sanctioned public performances of hula, Hawaiian dance that was publicly banned at the time at both his coronation and birthday jubilee festivities. 
He was also a Renaissance man and loved innovation and technology. Kala Kawa holds the distinction of being the first sovereign to circumnavigate the globe. His 1881 global tour of 281 days took him through Asia, the Middle East, Europe, across the U.S., and finally returning home that same year on October 29th. He was able to meet many heads of state during his journey, negotiating labor contracts and treaties with different nations. Kalakawa himself, an avid inventor, also designed various contraptions, including his own plans of a torpedo. After experiencing the grandeur of European royal life on his world tour, he ordered the building of a royal residence, Yolani Palace in Honolulu. Which was completed in 1882. Kala Kawa visited Thomas Edison while in New York, undoubtedly impressing the king, as he had electricity incorporated into the palace's design, including running water and telephones. Born Lydia Liliu Kamakaeha on September 2nd, 1838. Queen Liliuo Kalani was the last recognized sovereign of the Hawaiian Kingdom, ruling from January 29, 1891, until the overthrow of the Hawaiian Kingdom on January 17, 1893. Her chiefly parents, Caesar Kapaakea and Analea Kioho Kalole, had other noted issue, including David Kalakawa, Miriam Likelike, and William Pitt Leleiohoku. Upon her birth, she was given to High Chiefs Laura Konia and Abner Paki, and became the adopted sister to Bernice Pawahi, Bishop Museum's namesake. During the overthrow, the Hawaiian flag was ordered to be lowered from all governmental buildings throughout Hawaii, and later replaced with the American flag. The Hawaiian flag consists of a canton containing the Union Jack of the United Kingdom in the upper left corner. Set on a field of eight horizontal stripes, alternating in color from white to red to blue, and repeated starting from the top. The flag presented in the southeast corner case of Hawaiian Hall's third floor is said to have been lowered from the tower of the Judiciary Building in Honolulu at 11:46 a.m. on August 12, 1898. Because the Hawaiian flag was no longer allowed to be flown publicly, Hawaiian flag quilts emerged as a popular means of showing support for the kingdom. The quilt paired with the flag in this case depicts four Hawaiian flags making up the edges of the quilt, with a central crown flanked by two star motifs and two sets of crossed flags on poles. The smaller flags in the center are depicted flying inverted, an international sign of distress. Quilts like this continue to express one's deep, abiding, and unwavering love for the Hawaiian Kingdom. As one concludes the clockwise circuit of the third floor of Hawaiian Hall, a mural is displayed on the wall near the southwest corner, consisting of forty individually painted panels, arranged in a rectangular format, four panels deep by ten panels wide. Inspired by the Hawaiian prophecy chant of Kapihe, this mural was created in 2009 by over a dozen Native Hawaiian high school students, guided by noted Native Hawaiian visual artist Meliana Meyer. 
the prophecy chant foretold of an overturning, a change to Hawaiian daily life, and remains relevant today as when it was first uttered, for it represents major shifts in our social and political world. The mural titled Ho'olu Ho has an overall warm color palette, utilizing various shades of red and yellow. The panels on the left, right, and bottom edges of the installation have depictions of men in malo, Hawaiian loincloths, in crouched positions with bent arms extended upwards as if carrying a heavy load overhead. Water gourds, calabashes, and food bundles on a stone altar fill the foreground of the middle section, with abstracted feather cape designs filling the background. Two other prominent elements include a growing kalo plant, the staple starch source brought by Polynesian settlers to Hawaii, and a fish hook suspended from a cord, representing the famed fish hook of Maui, who in story used it to pull the Hawaiian islands up from the ocean floor. This manifestation of Kapihe's prophecy acknowledges difficulty and sorrow, heartache and turmoil, warfare and destruction, yet despite these profound changes, we continue to endure. This message transcends any one people, for we all have been hurt, all have experienced loss, but we have survived and are stronger for it whether as an individual, a community, or a nation. Kapihe's words evoke resilience, hope, and determination. E ihoana o luna, e piiana o lalo, e huiana na moku, e kuana kapaya, e moiana kaula, e kauana kauhuhu, o lani luna, o honua ilalo. That which is above will come down, that which is below will rise up. The land will unite and the walls will stand firm. The prophet continues to sleep. The house supports continue to be placed. The sky is still above and the earth below. Olelo Noeau 1331 Kai Aha The fish of Eva that silences the voice. Set of the pearl oyster which must be gathered in silence. Built as part of the first phase of construction in 1892, the museum's picture gallery sits poised above the Joseph M. Long Gallery on the first floor and can be accessed by the grand staircase at the main entrance by going up the stairs to the right or from the pathway that connects Hawaiian Hall to Pacific Hall, just around the corner from the elevator landing on the uppermost mezzanine. As you enter the picture gallery, more than a dozen original paintings and reproduced two-dimensional artworks in waist-high wooden and glass cases quietly await visitors to this special space. In the southwest corner of the room, near the entry point from the grand staircase connected to the front entrance, a special painting from the late 19th century provides a snapshot of part of Oahu that has become world-famous for its role in global events, but has undergone many changes over the past 200 years. The painting titled View of Pearl Harbor by Joseph D. Strong, is a magnificent panoramic image of Pu'uloa, meaning the long hill. It references the mountains that loom over a coastal scene of beauty. Cloud banks lie high over the peaks of the mountains, and the landscape slopes down to the shore, where wide, open locks of the bay, colored in the green blues typical of Hawaiian waters, can be seen. Large, western-style boats, with sails at full, move through the channels and around the small islets of the bay, while in the left-hand corner of the painting, 
three Hawaiian fishing canoes in a net, laid out to dry on a rack, are the closest elements to the viewer. Hu'uloa was known as one of the richer fishing grounds on the island of Oahu. Man-made fish ponds and natural features around the locks provided shelter and habitat for many species, especially edible Hawaiian oysters. The sheer presence of these shellfish also provided another name for the area, Pearl Harbor. Pu'uloa became known as Pearl Harbor as trade and political interests in the Kingdom of Hawaii grew elsewhere in the world. Shortly after his ascension, King David Laamea Kalakaua, through representatives sent to Washington, D.C. in 1875, concluded a treaty of reciprocity between the Kingdom of Hawaii and the United States of America. This would allow for closer economic and political ties between the two nations. A major intended consequence of the treaty was fee-free access of certain U.S. goods to Hawaiian ports and for rice, sugar, and other Hawaiian goods, likewise, to U.S. ports. The treaty could be terminated by either country seven years after its ratification, but also included language that restricted Kalakaua from entering into any similar agreements with other countries. When the treaty was extended and fully ratified by both Hawaii and the United States in 1887, another amendment was added, that the U.S. be given exclusive rights to enter the harbor of Pearl River to establish and maintain a coaling and repair station for U.S. vessels and give the U.S. government free reign to improve the entrance of the harbor and all other things needful to such purpose. This agreement, begun and extended despite great criticism, became one of the pivotal changes during Kalakaua's reign. It provided greater impetus for annexationists, both kingdom citizens and American nationals, to push for political and economic change favoring closer relations with the U.S., and the removal of the monarch from political power in Hawaii. By 1899, less than a decade after the overthrow of Hawaii's last ruling monarch, Queen Nuiuokalani, in 1893, the U.S. Navy had established the base, commonly known today as Pearl Harbor. This same base was the target of a surprise attack by Japanese aircraft in December 1941, which catapulted the United States into direct conflict with other nations in what would later be called World War II. Today, almost eight decades later, while legacies of conflict and change are very much present at Pearl Harbor, efforts are underway to return key parts of Pu'uloa's historical ecosystem to its waters. As recently as 2019, community organizations on Oahu, the University of Hawaii, and the U.S. Navy have worked to reintroduce two native oyster species to Pu'uloa, which are hoped to provide natural filtration of contaminants in Pearl Harbor's waters, filtering between 20 to 45 gallons of seawater each day. Come hither, draw nigh, bring unto me the living waters of life. Ah, where he has been for the last one thousand seven hundred and twenty nine. Kekaili polipo polihua akane. The dark blue ocean of Kane. A reference to the deep sea out of sight of land. As you walk into the main entry of the Pacific Hall, the first display case on the left-hand side explores aspects of Pacific Islands voyaging practices through stories of ancestors, tools used in non-instrumental navigation, and signs in nature utilized by expert wayfinders to follow known routes or to go down new sea trails. Near the top of this case, a small white shape is poised in mid-flight mirroring others sometimes seen soaring high above the modern cityscape of Honolulu, 
including the area of the museum campus. These small, elegant forms glide around trees and buildings, wheeling and pivoting as they slow their descent to perch in a tree or along the ledges of man-made structures. Usually silent, these shapes belong to the native bird called Manuoku, also known as the white tern. White terns are found throughout many tropical and subtropical areas of the world, but most of the Hawaiian population resides in the northwestern portion of the island chain. These birds were absent from the main islands until 1961, when a single pair of adults was discovered on the island of Oahu near Kokohit. The Oahu population has grown to over 2,300 birds and continues to thrive in the urban and suburban areas of Honolulu. It was designated as the official bird of the city and county of Honolulu in 2007. With a wingspan between 20 and 30 inches, Manuoku are easily recognized from afar, with long narrow wings, black eyes, and sharply pointed black beaks. When the birds reach maturity, the base of their bills turns blue. Males and females sport the same snow-white colors year-round, and Monuoku chicks have a downy, mottled brown appearance until they fledge. This preserved Monuoku was collected from the Midway Atoll National Wildlife Refuge in 2012 and gifted to the museum by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The Hawaiian name Monuoku translates literally as the bird of Ku. Ku, being a major deity in Hawaiian culture, responsible for many facets of human life, including governance, war, farming, fishing, and even the building of man-made structures. While the connection to the deity Ku is not fully understood in the contemporary time, possibly the most significant connection these birds have to native Hawaiian culture is in their ability to consistently signal the presence of land, a welcome boon to ocean voyagers on their way home or off to new places. Monuoku are amongst other birds which reveal the presence of land through their natural behaviors. When they leave their home to find fish in the early morning, they always return to the same place before nightfall. If you picture yourself on a double-hulled canoe voyaging in the 18th century that has not yet sighted land, observations of these birds could potentially save the lives of everyone aboard the ship. Noyo or eki-eki, which are black noddies, Noyo koha, which are brown noddies, Ah, also called boobies, and Eva, known as greater frigate birds, are other avian species that can lead to land. But large seabirds like Moli, the Laysan albatross, and Kaupu, the black-footed albatross, can soar for weeks over open water without stopping. While these other birds are not present inside the Pacific Hall, a journey to the Science Adventure Center across the Great Lawn of the museum will take you to more exhibits and collection specimens of some of these magnificent animals. Many island cultures are descended from peoples that left the western Pacific and traveled far from large land masses to smaller island groups and coral atolls. As early as the 1700s, Europeans who journeyed around the Pacific Ocean noticed linguistic and cultural similarities amongst Pacific Islanders, despite being spread across thousands of miles of open ocean. Typical of these connections, languages spoken across the Pacific share deep roots while retaining their own unique characteristics. Many Polynesian languages have similar root vocabularies and meanings. For example, the word kai in Hawaiian is connected to the word tai in Tahitian and Maori. All three carry multiple shades of meaning, but they all reference the sea and salt water. Another example is the word for eye. In Hawaii, the word is maka, but in most parts of the Pacific, including the Marquesas, Aotearoa New Zealand, Tahiti, the Cook Islands, Rapa Nui, Samoa, Tonga, Tuvalu, Tokelau, 
Niue, parts of the Solomon Islands, and even Vanuatu, the word for eye is mata. Counting systems are also consistent across different languages. Numbers like 5 and 8 in Pacific languages tend to be nearly the same. In Tonga, Nima means 5, and in many other Polynesian languages, Rima or Lima may also stand for the number 5 or refer to the hand, as in the Hawaiian word Manamanalima, which means fingers. Some words show great diversity, such as those that reference color. Red is a powerful symbolic color in many parts of the Pacific. In the Western Pacific, Pula in Tagalog, Abang in Javanese, and Mira in Indonesian show the range of terms for red in Southeast Asia. Coming into the island Pacific, Ula, Ura, Kula, and Kura become primary words for red in places like Hawaii, Tahiti, Samoa, Tonga, Tokelau, and the Austral Islands. These ideas about language as a descriptor of the oceanic universe are not new, but given more context, show the underlying connectedness and distinctive qualities of Pacific Island cultures through time and space. At the second floor landing of the central staircase in Pacific Hall, there is a large mural installed on the wall spanning approximately 16 feet wide by 8 feet in height. Commissioned as a site-specific work to complement the 2013 renovation efforts of the hall, it speaks to the interconnected histories, culture, and people of the Pacific. The work titled Anu'unu'u Kaike was facilitated by a collective of five native Hawaiian visual artists working together with a team of over two dozen indigenous Pacific youth based in Honolulu. It was completed over the course of six days. The mural is painted on a multi-layered assemblage of wood panel cutouts of various depths, taking the form of a large octopus. Various forms of sea life and seascapes are painted onto the surface. From a distance, blue is the primary color visually apparent, but upon closer inspection, one realizes that it consists of a spectrum of color all working together, much like an ecosystem, to create a harmonious whole. The group provided an artist statement saying, Just as our ancestors knew there were islands beyond their own shores, we know too that there are better ways for us to honor, speak, and care for our beloved mother, envisioning and sustaining our sea of islands, our ocean home. And so we pick up the mantle of artist navigators to reveal our deeply interconnected pathways, our love for the sea, land, and sky, and our love for one another, moving forward towards our shared future together. Contemporary work such as this help to instill values, passion, and awareness in our community, for our environment and with hope on our side, it takes hold in our future generations. This presentation was narrated by Melanie Ide, CEO and President of the Bishop Museum, Marcus Hanale Marzan, Cultural Advisor, and Kapaliku Maile, Culture Educator. The Bernice Pawahi Bishop Museum thanks you for listening to this brief audio presentation, which highlights a few of the historical exhibits, cultural content, 
and special stories we aim to share with visitors on a daily basis. We hope to welcome you to our 15-acre campus in person in the near future. Mahalo nui loa. Thank you very much. I'm going to go ahead and close it. Thank you guys for showing up. Thank you, Shannon. All right. Enjoy the convention. <laughs>